merging as a way to feed more people, training more students for a medical procedure, poverty, buffalo, and banana bread. You're in the moment. I'm Kara Hetland, and today we'll talk with two people who are not chefs or bakers, but wrote a cookbook about banana bread with more than 100 unique recipes. Can you say coconut mango banana bread? We'll get an update on the 58th annual Buffalo Roundup and Art Festival. Dakota political junkies Jonathan Ellis and John Hunter are here with us today, and we'll discuss persistent poverty. And we'll talk with Dr. Daniel Pedierite about his efforts to promote brachytherapy, and we'll learn about a merger in Clay County to feed more people. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Kara Hetland, sitting in for Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. The news is first. Addressing a complex issue like food insecurity is tough. It's even tougher in rural areas, as my next guests know. They're here to talk about a merger that could help community members in Clay County get food when they need it. The Vermilion Food Pantry and the Welcome Table are merging to become Feeding Vermilion. Emmanuel Akawanande is the Operations Director of Feeding Vermilion. Thanks for being here and welcome. For having me. And Kelsey Collier-Wise is the Executive Director of United Way in Vermilion. Thanks for being here, Kelsey. Thank you, Kara. And so they both joined me today uh, from SDPB studio at the University of South Dakota campus and Vermilion. So let's start um, with uh, Emmanuel and talk a little bit about what Feeding Vermilion is and a little bit of its history. Oh, uh, oh yeah, thank you for thank you for having this. Um, first of all, you know, the, the Clay County um, food insecurity uh, problem has been something that has been in the works over the time and uh, the food pantry has been there to to find a problem to solve that to, to find a way to solve that problem and um, looking at um, how over the years how the food pantry has been working to solve that pr issue you know as also um, we also have the welcome table the backpack program who also works in there and trying to see how those mission work together in the same light you know and uh, so that brought to the to the to the to the to the idea to the to the to, f to put those um those two institutions together to make so that we can have more efficiency reach out more to the to, to the community more and also have, have, the, have you know in the longer it's a vision that we want to see how food insecurity can be can be resolved in in, in Clay County and Kelsey, your com your uh, organization. So, um, United Way of Vermilion uh, runs the Community Connection Center, um, and that's a kind of one-stop social services shop uh, here in town in our downtown. And both the Welcome Table, which is a community meal once a week, um, they they oversee the Backpack Program, which is like a supplemental food program for for kids, and then also the Food Pantry, which is you know the traditional shopping for groceries sort of setup. Those are all under our roof. Um, they were in separate places, came together in 2019, and that kind of began the cooperative effort. Um, and as they worked together and more and more, shared resources, saw where the, the areas of overlap were, saw that they were often relying on the same volunteers, <laughs> the same donors, um, 
that's where the discussion started to happen um, and United Way facilitated, uh, maybe we could be one more officially, not just, not just in practice with cooperation, but truly bringing all of those resources together to be um, used for, for the best interests of the people that need it the most. And so now what does this combined feeding vermilion really look like? So now that the merger agreement has been signed, um, it means that they are combining boards. So they had separate boards of directors. It's going to be one board of directors. Um, Emmanuel oversees uh, the running of most of those programs, but he works really closely with John Lushbaugh, who's the, the founder of the Welcome Table and has been overseeing that for the last uh, 23 years. Um, and it means that they can uh, take advantage of ordering together, you know, whether that be from feeding South Dakota or, you know, buying the, that food wholesale. Um, they can recruit their volunteers together and really use them where they are the most needed. So if we get a big group of students from the university and they're there to help pack backpacks, but actually maybe there's a more than we can use, they can be easily deployed right into the food pantry to start stocking those shelves. Um, and so. Uh, over the next couple of months, you're going to see a new logo, you're going to see a new website, um, but the real change is going to be uh, probably what people don't see, and it's going to be those efficiencies and things like purchasing in storage and in volunteer use. More for your money? Exactly. Yeah. You know, we know that uh, our need has gone up so much over uh, the last summer, um, and Emmanuel can talk about that, but um, especially, uh, I know you guys are going to be talking about persistent poverty later mm -hmm. in the hour. Um, Clay County is one of the, the counties that's on that list. We've had incredibly high po poverty uh, over the last two decades, and um, that need is just growing. If there's a government shutdown and uh, people are cut off from WIC, I can only imagine what our numbers are going to look like. And so it's a, truly a situation where every dollar counts and every place that we can find those efficiencies means more people getting fed. And Emmanuel, talk a little bit about the difficulty in, in a rural area, in a, in a poverty county, uh, to reach all of the people when there's so many small communities in a county. Exactly. You know, um, the people we have in the, in the community, uh, you know, who have access to, to, to large amounts of food, you know, and um, uh, the food pantry has become a full, uh, like a, like a resource place for them to get the food, their met the nutritional value met, you know, and that has been a, a much a, a much a, a bigger challenge for for the community, and uh, and which for us bridging that gap for the community is something that we know that is very important, and looking at this, the numbers as Kelsey has said, you know, the numbers that represent those needs, and uh, the numbers are growing daily and every month we see in the the uptick of the numbers in the community so we can see how very important and the crucial role that the the, 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 the food pantry plays all right i want to thank you both for taking time and coming on the program today and we wish you the best of luck thank you thank, thank you thank you Kara. thank you You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and I'm Kara Hetland, and Dr. Daniel Peterite is the radiation oncologist with Monument Health and a specialist in a unique medical subspecialty. Dr. Peterite joins me from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City to explain more. Welcome, and thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Kara. It's nice to be back in the studio again, and eager to talk about prostate cancer, um, <laughs> brachytherapy, and 
a lot of topics to try to touch base on in the next 10 minutes or so. Right. So let's get started. And and let's talk. uh, September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, correct? Correct. So it's time for men to get their screening. Absolutely. So I would say men, unfortunately, tend to ignore their health care. And uh, so prostate cancer is definitely a legitimate men's health issue, as about one in eight men will develop prostate cancer. It's about as common as women with breast cancer. Uh, We do have effective screening for it. It's typically a a blood test called a PSA that stands for prostatic-specific antigen. There are a lot of controversies of screening and treating for prostate cancer, and I'm sure we'll get into that in a little Mm -hmm. bit. But there is a definite role for what I would call selective screening and selective treating, treatment for prostate cancer, as it is the second leading cause of cancer deaths in males. Okay, so uh, I'm just going to throw it out there that about eight years ago or so, I uh, scheduled a wellness check for my husband for his birthday gift. <laughs> That's what I gave him for his birthday was an appointment to go see his doctor. Just to have I'm all sure of the regular screenings. That. Well, but he goes now every year. So there you go. <laughs> so there you go. It's, an, it's a gift idea for somebody who has everything. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about uh, there's more than just the PSA test. So tell me what that selective screening and, and how do you choose those candidates? So this is where the controversy begins, because back in 2012, the U.S. Preventative Task Force recommended against prostate screening because in the field of, I would say, uro-oncology, that includes urologists and radiation oncologists, we were probably over-treating men, and they were experiencing side effects, and a lot of them did not need to be treated. And then so now fast forward to 2023, and so we went about five or six years where screening was not recommended. And so then what we now are seeing are men with more advanced stages of mm-hmm. prostate cancer. And so the U.S. Preventative Task Force changed the recommendation. But I would say in general, someone who's a healthy, healthy male between 50 to 75, it, typically it's a PSA. Oftentimes it's accompanied with a rectal exam, which guys don't like to have. It's probably not that sensitive, but they usually go together. And then we're also doing more selective screening by doing prostate MRIs, but it's really the blood test that drives it. And then oftentimes an MRI will be done. Uh, the urologists are the ones who are the gatekeepers, the management of prostate cancer, because they're the physicians that will do the bro- prostate biopsy. And then we can get into treatment as far as who can be observed, who can, um, who needs re- treatment. Um, but there is, I think there's some misperceptions even amongst physicians. I've heard it said several times in the doctor's lounge, well, if I get prostate cancer, it doesn't matter because I may die with it, but not from it. But that's not exactly true. And so we are seeing this emerging data that we're now seeing more guys. We're seeing mm-hmm. more and more patients with aggressive prostate cancer based on their prostate biopsy. And now the treatment requires more intensification. And then that's where the brachytherapy comes in. Right. So if we jump into treatment, we mm-hmm. kind of categorize guys with prostate cancer into low, intermediate, and high risk, and it's based on their PSA, their rectal exam, their MRI, and especially their uh, uh, prostate biopsies. It's called a Gleason score. So a lot of guys, if they have low-risk disease, so meaning their PSA, let's say, is less than 10, their Gleason scores are 3 plus 3, and if they have been tracking their PSA and it's been relatively stable... Uh, that gentleman can be safely observed with um, just obtaining a PSA every six months and then 
repeating the biopsy in a year. But about 50% of patients who do, do go on active surveillance will actually receive treatment either due to patient anxiety or in a repeat prostate biopsy, it shows higher Gleason scores. Okay. And then d- does every physician around the country know all of these options? Or do no, we need good- more training? Yeah, so just jumping into the big topic, 310 in prostate brachytherapy. So I was asked to be the president of the American Brachytherapy Society from 2019 to 2020, and they first asked me to do it. I thought they were out of their mind because my predecessors were from Harvard at MD Anderson, but I told them if I'm going to do this, first I had to check in my wife if this is okay, a little <laughs> side joke. It's like, you really want to do this because I have other things going on, but I wanted to we knew what the what the issues were nationally, and so when we get into treatment related to this initiative, um, surgery is an excellent option for guys with prostate cancer, and then there's two radiation options. One is daily radiation or external beam radiation and brachytherapy. So I'm a, a brachytherapist, and we use brachytherapy for prostate cancer, for GYN cancers, and it's probably one of the most effective ways to treat and cure prostate cancer with a relatively favorable side effect profile and so that option is a great option for men who are candidates because it's a one-hour procedure. They do have a few weeks of mild to moderate urinary irritative symptoms, but it takes the place of surgery. It's just as effective as surgery, and it's much more convenient than guys going through radiation for six to eight weeks Monday through Friday. So as, as part of this, because there's so many options, we have seen nationally that there's there's fewer brachytherapists being trained. So I told them when I took over the American Brachytherapy Society, we're going to do something meaningful. So we started an initiative called 310. In essence, what it is, the goal is to train 30 brachytherapy teams per year over the next 10 years. And so that program's up and running. We have several community and academic sites that are um, training radiation oncology residents and urologists as well uh, to be proficient in brachytherapy because it's really going to be a lost art if patients, if physicians are not trained in this modality. And I'll stop there for a moment because I could just keep talking. <laughs> well, so let's just back up just a little bit and, and really describe what brachytherapy is. Yeah, so patients who undergo brachytherapy or seed implants, in Greek, brachy means radiation delivered at a close distance. So we just did a procedure a couple hours ago. So that's why I'm in scrubs, had to run over here. So patients that have this done, I'll try to sterilize the procedure a little bit. But so guys are asleep. Their legs are up in stirrups. That's about when their wives start to smirk. It's your turn, right? So it's done under trans. Uh, it's a transperineal approach. So these seeds are placed in the space called the perineum, so between the anus and the scrotum. So ultrasound probe is placed in the rectum. We put a template over the probe. And then this template is alphanumeric, and it's linked to the ultrasound grid. And so if I want to put a row of seeds in, say at big boy three, it's like that old game battleship, obviously isn't a game. I place a small needle into the prostate to the perineum. I take out the needle and anywhere between two to three seeds come out. So Mm -hmm. typically we're talking about 15 to 20 small needle sticks, 60 to 80 seeds. It's an hour procedure. They go home within two to three hours once they can empty their bladder and they feel okay. The advance that is one of the advancements that we've done, and we just started this a few weeks ago, it's called MARS, and it stands stands for MRI-assisted radiosurgery. But this is really taking prostate brachytherapy to the next level because with the use of MRIs, we can see exactly where to put the seeds in and also, equally importantly, what normal structures to avoid to try to minimize late side effects. 
And as a radiation oncologist, can this technique be used for other types of cancer? Yeah, so for women of cervical cancer, this is actually life-saving. If women don't receive brachytherapy, if they are have more advanced stages of cervical cancer, then their cure rate's dramatically compromised. And worldwide, cervical cancer is either number one or number two as far as incidence and mortality. And there's a lot of countries that don't even have access to adequate oncology services. And especially in the realm of cervical cancer, these women are dying of cervical cancer and don't have access to this life-saving treatment. Back to prostate cancer, we now know that patients that have more aggressive prostate cancer because of the lack of screening that the combination of doing daily radiation and brachytherapy compared to doing daily radiation alone, the cure rates are 20 to 30% Mm -hmm. higher. So we actually have a treatment that can cure 80 to 90% of these patients if they're not metastatic through the use of um, this technology. And how are you towards your goal of 310? So because of COVID, that kind of killed us for a while, but we have... Um, probably about 20 institutions on board. We're training teams of brachytherapists that include radiation oncologists because physics physicists are equally important. And then we have urologists involved as well. So I think we've trained about 20 people in the program, and there's probably another 50 to 100 uh, potentially interested residents that we're trying to get slated for our program. Nice. Very nice. Well, I wish you all the best, and it's always a pleasure to have you on the program, and we'll have you back to have more conversations as well. So thank you so much for taking time uh, and coming on the air today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Kara. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Kara Hetland, sitting in today for Lori Walsh. And according to the Census Bureau, one in 10 South Dakota counties experience what experts call persistent poverty. And what does that mean? Well, Jonathan Ellis dove into the poverty trap. It is recent reporting for the Dakota Scout and... Uh, John Hunter joins us here as well as we have our Political Junkies segment. Jonathan is co-founder of the independent newspaper, The Dakota Scout, and John Hunter is publisher emeritus of the Madison Daily Leader and member of the South Dakota Newspaper Hall of Fame. And they join me in the Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Welcome and thanks for being here. Thanks, Thanks, Kara. Thanks for the invitation. So happy to have you. So let's, uh, let's dive in. Poverty. Uh, persistent poverty. Yeah. yeah. As, as, the, as the tagline uh, that the Census Bureau gave that, I mean, it, it just is a problem that hasn't been solved uh, for a very long time. And it's a problem, uh, you, you know, for, for 10% of the counties in the United States of America uh, fall into this category. And basically, it's a, it's a category of, of the, the populations of those counties having a poverty rate of 20% or more uh, since the 1980s. So we're talking about a very long time where these, these communities across the country have just not been able to get out of poverty, whether, it, you know, and in South Dakota, I mean, very specifically, there are 11 counties here uh, that have been in, that have been in that situation. And it's interesting to me, I mean, it, these are obviously, this is not new. I mean, we've known about this in South Dakota, that, that there are certain challenges, uh, especially within Indian country of, of trying to lift people out of poverty. And despite a lot of, uh, you know, I think we would say a lot of cash assistance that that have gone to these places, different programs, um, you know, legalized gambling was a big issue for a lot of Native American communities across the country, but not really here so much. And so 
Um, so, you know, the question is, you know, the poverty trap. I mean, how, how, what, what are the solutions? And kind of my reporting was disappointed, disappointing a little bit because you go, to, I went to some of the people who you, you would have thought would be, have some, some solutions or something, you know, some, some, advi- you know, something, uh, and they didn't really want to talk about the issue. Right. That's the, well, what's the why? And then how do you solve it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you, whose problem is it to solve? Whose problem? Yeah. I, it, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a collective problem, I think, uh, in some sense. And, uh, you know, and, and that means there's not just, you can't necessarily say it's a government issue. It's probably there are more issues. You know, there, there are some private industry issues that, you know, so, it, you know, I, I don't, yeah, you, you, I mean, the government certainly has a role in this uh, because of, uh, of of the nature of the reservation system and so be it. But, but you know, I think that it, it's broader than that. So we, we talked earlier about Clay County, uh, about uh, the merging of the two food uh, feeding organizations. Um, and so are we putting Band-Aids, just taking care of people in now, today, or are we uh, solving a problem? Well, as a food distribution problem, I would say, that, I mean, while, while it's probably necessary, it is probably a Band-Aid. I mean, you want to get to a point where people don't need those services, right? And so um, you, you have the service, and that's a good thing for the people who need them, but, you know, you need to have a, 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 an economy that works so that people don't need those services. And so, John, the politics of it all, is this a hotbed issue that politicians want to embrace and, and stand up for? We haven't seen any of our state leaders embrace it uh, as such. Uh, I think George Mickelson was kind of famous for trying, you know, trying to work out something. But these, as Jonathan's article mentioned, these are um, primarily reservation counties in South Dakota. And um, the reservation system in America, at least in South Dakota, is in awful shape. Uh, I don't think we should mince words and try to pretend it isn't. It's, and the persistent poverty is just an awful situation. Uh, it does need solutions. I think status quo is not a solution. Um, you'd say, let's just keep doing this. Uh, I feel awful for the tribal members who are suffering because of this, and there are other problems. Poverty is uh, is bad enough in itself, but it does tend to cause other problems too. There's certainly violence on the in these counties. That's a problem. There's alcoholism on the in these counties documented. So it does need a. I think it needs a fresh solution, Kara, mm. in answer to the question. I think uh, continuing the status quo is uh, not going to do anything. You mentioned Bill Clinton coming uh, in 1999. You were there, right? Yeah. Were you, you weren't here. You were. Still, Jonathan was just a uh, child. You were still then. a child. I, <laughs> that's, that's I was not there. True. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean, I remember the hype and remember the we got to do this, we got to solve this, and a whole lot of money got poured in. Uh, but were there a whole lot of solutions? Is has always been my question. Well, I as you mentioned, I remember it. I remember it well, and. Uh, there were so many conclusions about that later that it was, you know, kind of a big uh, event. And yes, money followed that, but it it didn't have the kind of staying power that, that people wanted. And maybe that was, we don't know who that was. It was interesting, though, that President Clinton, a Democrat, was really proposing a capitalist solution for this, which I don't think would, would be done today in today's uh, partisan politics. Um, but the you know, there's, and we could go on for a lot more than a 20 minute segment, but um, 
part of the trick is there's not unanimity on what everyone wants to do. The tribal leaders want one thing, the tribal members might want another. People in the communities who are not members of the tribe want a third thing. State government wants a fourth. And it's I, the hardest part, I think, the whole situation is that we can't come up with a unified plan that everyone can work on. Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, there are some bright spots, and I try to I try to end the story with, with some of those bright spots. I mean, from a state perspective, you know, the state government and the tribal governments don't have as much interact. I mean, they, the, the tribal governments prefer to, have, to interact with the federal government, you know, because they're sovereign nations themselves. Um, but you, you, I think one of the bright spots with, you know, within um, this is the rural broadband uh, mm-hmm. initiative that, you know, that Governor uh, Noam deserves credit for and the legislature deserves credit for, for, for funding that. And I think that, that that's one of the bright spots that, you know, that could help uh, in this area. Um, you know, a source for this was Gay Kingman. She's She's been with the Great Plains Tribal Chairmen's Association. Mm-hmm. a great source for this story. And her entire career, basically, she's she's watched this and her, you know, one of you know, she she talked about some of the bright spots and you know whether you know agriculture that the tribes can participate in. But you know, for her, you know, she's seen this problem, and as she I think one quote one of the quotes and you know they've gone they they visit presidential administrations they they visit congressional delegations, uh, and and nothing really seems to get solved. So, you know, following on on the the money that came into these communities, you know, just throwing money is not necessarily uh, is going to solve the problem. Yeah. And, and just like we see with any other, a lot of you know. With education, you can't just throw money at it. So it takes more than than just money. It takes more than just government. It, it, it's a broader solution for sure. And so the connectivity side. So here you're going to have internet resources. That's just in the air, right? You need the devices, you need the apps, you need the content, right, to for it to make a difference. And training. And training. You know the 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 broadband project does provide a lot of the devices too. They can mm-hmm. they have programs that go with that, and so it goes a little bit farther down the stream. But again, using the creative ideas to how to use it, whether it's in agriculture or in uh, entrepreneurship or whatever it is, yes, there are there are more things that come with that. But I agree with Jonathan, it is a bright spot in those counties that they're going to have as good a connectivity to the internet as anyone in America. Well, and I know SDPB is working on offering preschool education uh, with with tablets once they have the the connections to do that. So start educating uh, as well and letting these kiddos get their hands on on some of that material before school starts as well. Yeah. So just a little plug uh, for one of the things that we do. Let's move on. Uh, petitions, Secretary of State. Here oh, we go. Controversy. Imagine that. Huh. <laughs> huh. Huh. <laughs> There you go. What's yeah. going on? Well, my colleagues <laughs> kind of wrote this story yesterday, but there was a dispute. So there will be uh, so there will be a, uh, a ballot measure, uh, most likely, I guess, to uh, repeal the state's medical marijuana uh, law. And the ballot language, uh, you know, there's a dispute now. Uh, South Dakotans for Better Marijuana Laws, Matthew Schweik, he says, hey, this is this violates the law because you, you have to, the law, if you're going to repeal something that's in, in that's law, you have to have it struck out within the petition. You have to show voters oh, what, what is, is actually being struck out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that law um, was a very, was many pages long and that nothing, so what, the, the petition to revoke it doesn't have any of that language. It just says, I think Exhibit A. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't actually show what is the, to the voters what's being struck out. 
So they've complained to the Secretary of State's office saying that it should be, you know, this should be revoked, this should be taken off the ballot. Uh, the Secretary of State's office has, has said no. Um, and that's about all they're saying. Uh, they're certainly not talking to us. Uh, they, um, they, there's no transparency, at least on this particular issue. Well, who brought it forward? Uh, a gentleman in Rapids. He didn't. He's not responding either. Oh. Uh, you know, huh. Travis Ismay, I think, is if I got pronouncing his name correctly. Okay. Uh, so yeah. So that it, it's uh, there's a question of whether it violates the law. So I, this this could um, potentially be challenged in court. So we could vote on it. We could vote on this, and then it would be challenged in court, or would it be challenged? It'd probably first? be challenged first. I would challenge it first, given yeah, yeah, given what given what happened with uh, <laughs> the, the, the last legal marijuana, you know, right. So yeah, it should. I mean, it might be challenged first. I'm often surprised that uh, petition organizers don't do more vetting. There, it, it seems like we have frequently these things are challenged, and there's a technicality that they. If I were to do it, and I've never, I've never started a petition, but I would check with every possible, <laughs> you know, the attorney general's office, the secretary of state's office, everyone I could find to get that thing before you'd start to do this. But this, you know, as as the Dakota Stout Scout reporting said, this could be an error that keeps that thing off the ballot. And so the attorney general, their only job is to write the explanation. Their job is not to make sure it's correct. Uh, yeah, they, 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 they do the explanation. I mean, they have, uh, in, in those explanations in the past, they have said, hey, this might be challenged because it might violate the Constitution. I mean, they have, they, they'll throw a warning flag out there now and again. Mm-hmm. Right, but, but they're not going to look at the petition and say. They're not going to, well, they should, yeah. You, they, oh, I think there is some, there is something that the, that the Secretary, or excuse me, the Attorney General's office does in that process. It isn't just a you know, quick explanation on the top. But I don't know exactly where the limits of where they go on those things. Um, but I would, you know, again, I would try to get as much clearance as you can from both those offices in peer before I'd ever start proceeding. And yeah. I don't know if either one of those would have caught it or it took the gentleman in Rapid City to point it out to people. Well, the South, South Dakota for Mar- Better Marijuana Law is obvious. I mean, you have, an, you have an industry now that is sort of starting to grow, and uh, they would you know, hate to see it, you know, the, the plug pulled on it, you know, after one vote. So you know, they're going to probably do everything they can to say, hey, let's get this off the ballot. But this is to repeal. This is to repeal medical marijuana. marijuana. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And those organizations don't want it repealed, correct? No. Right. No. Yeah. They want it to continue they, to grow. To continue to continue to the, for the industry to grow. And for everybody to get back pain and get a card. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Jonathan Ellis is co-founder of the Dakota Scout. John Hunter is publisher emeritus of the Madison Daily Leader. They joined me for our Dakota Political Junkies conversation today. And thank you very much, both of you, for coming in. I appreciate it. Thanks, Kara. Yeah, I'm just happy I didn't have a Mitch McConnell moment. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a moment for fiscal debate. U.S. Representative Dusty Johnson gave a fiery speech on the House of Representatives floor. He appealed to lawmakers to get our fiscal house in order. Here are his unedited remarks in support of the proposed federal spending cuts. Take a listen. Madam Speaker, our debt, our deficit, our spending is indefensible. 
Three years ago, our national debt was $23 trillion, a staggering sum by any measure. Since then, it has grown by 50% to $33 trillion. We've heard allegations tonight uh, from one side of the chamber that everybody deserves blame for that crisis. So let me be very clear. During that time, I have voted against $13 trillion in spending. Nevertheless, we find ourselves at a tipping point. In the last 10 years, we have spent $3 trillion just on interest on the debt. In the next 10 years, we won't spend $3 trillion on interest. We will spend $10 trillion. For that money, our country gets nothing. No sailor, no soldier, no safety net. We get nothing. Making matters worse, in seven years, Medicare is insolvent, and in 10 years, Social Security is insolvent. We must get our fiscal house in order. Now, the appropriations bills before us move us in that direction. They do so through real, robust, and significant cuts, billions of dollars in cuts. Are the bills perfect? No. Do I support every single cut in every single bill? No. Can we balance the budget through non-defense discretionary cuts alone? No. To be honest, these bills will not solve all that ails us, but they are a critically important step towards stopping this runaway train. Business as usual, Madam Speaker, is unacceptable. A yes vote acknowledges that and moves us in the right direction. I yield back. Those were unedited remarks by U.S. Representative Dusty Johnson. He spoke Tuesday in the House in favor of the proposed appropriation bills and federal spending cuts. Up next, we head to the grassy plains of Custer State Park to preview an historic roundup. The buffalo will run and the cowboys and cowgirls will ride faster. Your preview for the 58th Annual Buffalo Roundup and Arts Festival is after the break. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. Listening in the moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Kara Hetland, and the 58th annual Buffalo Roundup will stampede through Custer State Park on Friday. The event gathers buffalo together from around the park, and since the roundup is completed by volunteers and employees on horseback, it looks a bit like a scene out of the Wild West. And Lydia Austin is the Visitor Services Coordinator for Custer State Park. She joins us by phone to preview the Roundup and the Arts Festival happening this weekend. Lydia, thanks so much for taking time and coming on the program today. Hey, thank you for having me. 58th Annual. Here we go. Do you, what, what runs through your brain at this point right before the Roundup actually <clears throat> happens? Right now, it's a lot of prep. It's getting people in order, dealing with those little issues that come up, um, just getting us all set so everything goes smoothly the next couple of days. Talk a little bit about the volunteers that show up each and every year. Yeah, so, you know, you said we had volunteer horseback riders, but actually our whole event is done by volunteers besides the state workers. We do have um, 
drawwriters.com and volunteers that help with the push down at the, the Buffalo Roundup. But on top of that, we have about 120-some volunteers from just Custer State Park and our neighboring parks that help with the visitor side of things, getting things parked, the arts festival, getting folks parked and organized. So we really couldn't do it without our volunteers that help us out. And the visitors that come, how many people are we talking about? They oh come boy, to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On, on Roundup Day, you know, I was going through the stats, and in the last five years, we've had anywhere from a little over 16,000 all the way up to 22,000 visitors uh, come for Roundup Day itself. So we're kind of predicting that range there. Um, so quite a few uh, folks get parked out on the prairie at very and, early in the morning. And tell me a little bit about the why this is necessary for the buffalo. Yeah. So, you know, we had round up the buffalo regardless of visitors come and watch. Um, uh, it has become events, but even if, you know, for some reason we didn't host it, we still round them up. Um, every year we try to get the entire herd through our corral system for their annual health check. Um, once in the corral system, we're going to separate off the mature herd and the, the calves. The calves will go through and they're going to get branded with the year they're born. So this year it'd be a three and then an S for the state of South Dakota. They're also going to get vaccinated, um, a health check, and then we'll decide. Um, we try to do randomly with the calves as much as possible if we're going to keep them or we're going to auction them off. The mature system is going to get a pregnancy check. Um, they're going to get a health check. The bulls will also just get a breeding check. And once again, we're going to figure out who's going to stay and who we're going to auction off through that because our rangelands can only handle about 900 buffalo in the wintertime. And about how many do you think you round up? Uh, this year, our projected number at Roundup is a little over 1,500. Um, so it's one of our larger ones. We had a lot of calves uh, born this year. So we're a little above average, um, and we'll probably auction off a little bit more this year as well, probably looking about 500. Okay. And so let's. how many years have you had the Arts Festival in association with this? This is our 30th annual arts festival, um, so it's been around for a while. In the late 90s, they decided to add it on just as an addition to the Roundup, because the Roundup was becoming such an event, and they wanted to have something for the visitors to do. And so uh, we added on the arts festival. It's three days. Uh, this year, we're really excited. We have a little over 160 vendors, so it's one of our largest arts festivals, so we're kind of excited to see the variety that shows up. And people come just for the Arts Festival, or since they're coming to watch the Roundup, they participate in the Arts Festival, or a little bit of both? A little bit of both, actually. You know, a majority of the folks are coming out for that Roundup. They want to want to see that. But we have folks that, you know, come out for the, the food, the music, the events here, especially a lot of our locals. It's just kind of a great time to come down to the park and see it in a different light. Um, and honestly, it's, it's fun. Like, the vibe's always good. Everyone's in a good mood, and it's just an enjoyable time in the park. And quickly, what's your favorite moment of this weekend? My favorite moment um, is probably Friday morning. Before the Buffalo, before anything, it's just the sunrise coming up and just getting beyond the prairie with a good cup of coffee and then watching all the visitors get to experience that. Uh, it's just kind of a neat way to see the park. All right. Lydia Austin, I want to thank you for taking time and coming on the program today. The Buffalo Roundup begins at 930 local time, Friday, September 29th. That's this Friday at Custer State Park. The Arts Festival runs Thursday through Saturday at the park. And you can actually watch this experience on SDPB. We'll have it on sdpb.org slash live, our Facebook page uh, live, and also on our YouTube channel. So an opportunity if you can't make it out to Custer State Park uh, on Friday, you can watch it from your computer uh, or your device at any time. Thank you so much. This is SDPB.
All right, lemon, blueberry, salted caramel pretzel, coconut mango. What are these? They're all banana bread recipes uh, from the cookbook called Going Bananas and co-authored by South Dakotans Nate Moss and Zeke Hansen. And the book features more than 100 unique banana bread recipes. Nate and Zeke are here with me in the Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having us. A hundred different recipes. What? Yeah. (laughs) I think going through it, you called it the banana bread book. I think at times we've both looked at this as a life mistake, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, we did it. Yeah, we did it. We originally set out to (laughs) collect family recipes. So we did a Kickstarter. We're like, let's collect family recipes. We'll put pictures next to the recipes and we'll just, it'll be an easy book to make. (laughs) Joke was on us. I think. How long? How long did it take? We baked all of the recipes within 35 days. It was a, a mess of eggs and bananas. Uh, and it's been, <laughs> yeah. it's been a, about three months since we wrapped up baking that it took to, for us to format the book. And then the book changed formatting and companies. And all, we're all like through that now and, and yeah. we're ready to fulfill pledges. And it took probably f- six months beginning to end for us to do this. Yeah, we dove really full into it and baked banana bread endlessly. Every yeah. Day. <laughs> weeks. Yeah. Okay, was every bread photo perfect ready? Uh no. We there were <laughs> there were a couple breads that it took a couple attempts to get right. The the apple crumble, the apricot yep. crumble, those took some because we we replaced oil with applesauce or puree and it it didn't set right. It was more of a pudding bread than a bread. And so it took us a little bit to get that figured out. Okay. I have so many questions. Hit me, yeah. Uh, so what's the secret to the best banana bread? That's a tough one. Um, I mean, because is it oil or is it applesauce? Is it... <coughs> to us, I think one recipe that we really kind of, is we went through them all, I think more eggs actually is the thing that helped us get the bread to be the way we wanted it to be. More eggs and oil. I think more we had the most oil, successful yeah. oil, even over butter. We yeah. had... We had more reliable outcome with oil and three eggs. And more rising agents didn't do... We expected more rising agents to rise. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it didn't really seem to make that much a difference. The eggs gave it a a fluffy factor, and the oil gave it a reliable texture. Mm -hmm. And that was what we came out of it with. My mother-in-law's secret is buttermilk. Oh, I love the buttermilk recipes. We we had a lot of very pleasant accidents with buttermilk. And uh, well, we we the first recipe that we were given, we didn't measure the buttermilk, and we realized <laughs> after we put it in the oven that we put in almost a full cup. I think we more put a full cup in. buttermilk into it than we than we thought we need. Then yeah, called call like for a quarter or something. yeah, a quarter yeah. cup, and we put a cup and a quarter. But it was one of our favorite breads. It, it, it took us it, three hours to bake it. Yeah, it was it was in our first handful that we baked. It was a little moist, baked. was it? No, it was it was very good. But the buttermilk has been some of our favorite breads. It doesn't look like you would traditionally think a banana bread should look. Get a little crispier. I yep. I think the banana bread or the buttermilk plus more sugar seemed to be the answer that gives it that nice crispy outside. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for that plus a nice soft inside. Yeah. Okay. <coughs> I'm sorry. Um, who did you really write this for? We have written a lot together. We have another series we haven't released that we've completed three books in. And we, we wanted to do something that we could release without any real expectation of like 
well, we have to find a publisher before we do this, or we're doing it for that reason. We just wanted to be able to make something that people could share together. And like Nathan's baked a lot more than I have, but it's always fun to get together in the kitchen and then to share what you've made with other people. And that's, for me, why we did it. Yeah, it was kind of a fun, we like to just dive into things and experiment with things. And this was a perfect way to just try new things. And that's really what this book is for, is just to experiment with your bakes and see what you can come up with. And how many of the recipes that made it into the Go Bananas, right? That's what it's called, Go Bananas uh, cookbook, really came from your family? Uh, We created, of the 114-ish, we created from scratch 98 of them ourselves. So we had about 16 that were submitted by other people, not just our family, but friends, friends of friends, family friends, strangers that just came across. Like there are people from around the world that donated their favorite recipe. Um, and it, it, through that, we, we came up with, you know, the 114 that we didn't expect to have to write from scratch, but we did, and, and our breads are better because of it. So there's a basic formula for good bread, and you just added stuff, and you had to get it right, the ratio We right? added and subtracted. I think the, the bread that we started with was kind of unrecognizable by the time we got to the end. So. Yeah, I, I think all the ingredients are mainly interchangeable, depending on if you like a certain recipe that gives you a fluffier bread or a crispier edge, you could probably just sub out the in, the add-in ingredients. So if it's berries or chocolate or walnuts or something <laughs> like that. And really, we kind of just like liked the texture of something. We're like, this would go with good with nuts or whatever. We kind of went that direction. And we it. did try like yolk only, white only. We tried more egg, less egg. Yeah. We we mixed up all the rising ingredients and we changed out the flour. And so by the end of it, we have the breads that we like, but there are also an assortment of breads that other people will like more than that. And you ate them all? We ate them all. And <laughs> we, we turned the, yeah. the leftovers into banana bread cake pops, which went over pretty well because who doesn't like frosting? Yeah. Yeah. It. Yeah, so it's at the, at the, the, <laughs> the very end here, the last recipe in the book, because we did some kneaded, like, rising agent ones as well. Yeah. But, yeah, the leftovers, rather than try to eat each loaf ourselves, we turned into banana bread cake pops. And then you can freeze it? And then it's it's easy to share. You yeah. can freeze it. Yep. Leftover bread, fresh bread, you just mush it up and add some frosting to it, drizzle and chocolate drizzle on it. Drizzle chocolate, <laughs> yeah. Because everybody has well-intended yeah. frozen bananas yeah, absolutely. So does it matter how um, how brown they are? Is there a secret to what your banana needs to look like when you start making your bread? Yeah, ripe is definitely the way to go, but we ran into an issue of them not being ripe. So we ended up, we found a way to make them ripe by baking them. Mm-hmm. So throw them in the oven for 20 to 30 minutes at 350. Oh, I just microwave them. Yeah, microwave yeah. would okay. probably yeah. work too. Yeah, because yeah. we, we went through 120 pounds of bananas and so <laughs> in a month. So we needed to find some quick, expedited uh, bananas that we could mash yes. without having a bunch of lumps. To wait, yeah. yeah. Oh, but lumpy bananas wouldn't be bad. Would it's they? not bad. It was just somewhere we, when we were freezing them to try to get them used, it, it was harder to, to quickly microwave them and then mash them rather yeah. than just put them in the oven and it's... black them up. And some people like it more incorporated, yeah. or some people like a chunk of banana in there. So that's obviously a preference. Yeah. yeah. So you buy this book, uh, cookbook, and then can you adapt to your own taste Absolutely. as well? Absolutely. We encourage that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> this isn't a one-way a one <laughs> no. only. No, uh, we, we hope that you take these and 
tweak them and make them your own. That was the intention. We just, we liked the idea of just diving in and seeing how far we could go with banana bread after we didn't get quite enough Kickstarter recipes. And it was a lot, a lot of fun. Okay, so we only have a few seconds left in the show. How do you get the book? Right now it's available digitally on Amazon, Going Bananas. Um, you can you can buy it there. Hard copies will be available after we fulfill the Kickstarter yep. pledges. And zekeandnatebake.com has all the links. All right. You heard it here. Going Bananas. And we're going bananas because we're almost out of time. Uh, this is our show. We hope it served you. I'm Kara Hetland in today for Lori Walsh. Thanks for listening. Thanks.